Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Uh, love to watch some cricket occasionally. Also love to play with Legos, or at least I did when I was a kid. <laughs> and I recently saw that they also have a Seinfeld set, so I might get back into it. Esben Stark joins us, president of Lego Education, to talk to us about the pandemic's impact on uh, learning and what back to school means um, for Lego as well. Um, it has a mission to transform the way kids learn. I guess I didn't even realize I was learning when I was doing it, but I grew up, as did probably everybody around me, as been playing with Legos. It must be one of the staple toys, at least for American children. Absolutely, I think it's a sorry. Um, I think it's a staple toy uh, in a lot of places around the world, and isn't it wonderful that that you can learn without knowing that you're learning, and you can learn without being instructed. Espen, we the world's still dealing with the pandemic, but from an educational perspective, uh, you know, the last year, last academic year was, for a lot of places around the world, remote learning. How do you think learning is changing, evolving, as, as, as you guys look at it from your perspective going forward, the pandemic? What was the impact that it will have going forward, do you think? Well, I think immediately what we know is we're going to welcome a lot of students back into the classroom uh, that that uh, have faced a learning loss. Uh, um, their social, emotional learning and development uh, has been uh, impacted as in reality they've been at home. And I think also importantly for many, we've seen reduced engagement in learning. Um, and, and very unfortunately, that, that uh, the most severe impact of those most severely impacted uh, are often those already most disadvantaged. So, of course, we have to face how, how do we pick up uh, those students and how do we give them a healthy uh, approach uh, to learning while closing those gaps. What kind of learning are we talking about? I mean, I, um, I think probably the skills that I picked up the most were with engineering, especially as I became a teenager and started buying the more complicated, um, you know, Lego car sets, for example. What 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 is uh, what are people learning the most with your products? Our solutions or our products uh, are designed, of course, first uh, of all, to de um, deliver towards uh, the standards and learning goals uh, in the classroom, so that they're really highly usable. But then, of course, we're also focused around really developing uh, 21st century skills as well. So things like creativity, critical thinking problem solving and, and important social emotional skills also like uh, collaboration, resilience. So when you have to solve a real world problem in the classroom with, uh, with uh, one of your mates, uh, there's a lot of problem solving. There's a lot of negotiation. Ah, so it's not the technique because I have a, so my godson in, uh, I got, I got him recently, the Lego Ducati Panigale V4R. <laughs> of course. And he's just a kid. He's only, I think, seven years old but after he got it put together with his dad he said look if i turn the crank the cylinders go up and down and i thought it was so cool that there was just that much detail in the set yeah i think imagine that and imagine imagine you know the magic of that joy and the engagement that he has i'm sure he spends sort of hours really deeply engaged in that and then you layer over 
um, intentional content to then uh, take out learning outcomes uh, of that. So while it's not the Ducati we bring into the classroom, it is uh, hands-on Lego-based solutions. There are also coding elements in it where students then solve real-world problems, uh, having uh, subject-based learning, but again, also bringing on a lot of those 21st century skills. And I could imagine that he's also practiced quite a bit of resilience as he's played, uh, built that big one and, uh, you know, finding the right elements and, uh, and ultimately succeeding. So I think take that magic, add the purposefulness of delivering towards specific outcomes, and then bring it into the classroom. That's what we look to deliver. So what is Lego education, you know, doing specifically? I mean, you think, think about the last year we had that remote learning, and I know you guys support Lego education supports learning through play. I'm guessing that took a, a pretty big hit last year as kids were working remotely. Um, of course, we've tried to do what we can to support teachers uh, to have a learning wherever it takes place. But you're right, our solutions are optimized for using uh, in the classroom where the students can engage in collaborative, iterative uh, problem solving. And I think we've also seen through the pandemic actually the magic that the classroom has and what students are missing there. And what's then really important for us to say, how can we make that even stronger? How can we optimize the learning potential in the classroom? Uh, And that's why we talk about the importance of rethinking learning. So again, how can we make learning um, uh, engaging, personally meaningful, iterative, socially uh, collaborative, so we can really press the students with the skills uh, they need. Like I said, a very important, healthy approach to learning. Eshman Stark, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate a fascinating discussion here. Eshman Stark, president of Lego Education. And again, kids going back to school, that's the really good news and uh, getting them back into the classroom, getting back into activities, after-school activities and clubs and sports, and that's good news, and uh, Lego is a big part of that. We had some better-than-expected manufacturing. ISM data came out this morning. Good news there for the manufacturing front. Let's break it down with Tim Fury, chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey for the Institute of Supply Management based in uh, Miami. Tim, thanks so much for joining us here. Better-than-expected numbers. Give us the highlights. Yeah, Paul, really good demand again in the month of August, uh, you know, better than the month of July and 65 plus. I mean, that's a great number. The new export order number was really strong, too, supporting that new order number. Backlog was, again, near records, second highest number ever since we've been keeping records since the 90s. And the customer inventory, again, was 12 months below 40, which is just super too low. Empty shelves everywhere. If you've been in any of the stores lately, try to buy a car, you can't. There's You go into a a department store going to a grocery store, shelves are empty everywhere. And it's kind of indicative of what this report is saying. That's the, killing uh, the me. The supplier delivery side eased a little bit, uh, uh, and, and prices are backing off. There, there is some positive signs for the future. Go ahead. Well, I just um, spent the my lunch hour trying to order a titanium um, <laughs> connecting pipe for um, an Akrapovich exhaust. And who, who doesn't do that in their lunch well, hour? Well, it's just they're <laughs> impossible to find. I called a ton of distributors and dealerships, and they say, you know what, you're going to be waiting weeks. Like, hope to get it uh, at the earliest end of October. And it just feels like that's a long way away from, you know, I, I feel like we just finished August. Um, when is this going to, when are we going to see a recovery? 
Well, so let's let's expand on that. You know, our our number one industry sector that's expanding is furniture. And uh, you go into a furniture store these days, and they'll tell you, well, maybe four weeks, but I don't really know. And even the day before it's supposed to be delivered, they'll call you up and say it's going to be another three weeks. A lot of that has to do with port congestion. I, I think we're going to be dealing with this uncertainty for quite some time. Uh, you know, the fact that the Delta variant raged through uh, the U.S. Uh, to such, such an extent, it didn't so much impact our panelists, but it's definitely impacting sentiment. And you can see it in the uh, conference board and the University of Michigan. So, And that's not a good thing. Our lead times are out so far. We've set record raw material lead times again. And what's happening is that's driving up our new order number. How much, I can't really tell, but you can probably assume it's five points of it. So, uh, And that's essentially advanced demands. That's a, you know, if you have lead times that are typically six weeks, they're now 12 or 15. You're committing to higher prices at some point longer in the future than you normally do, and that's kind of risky. But I, but I think, you know, overall, uh, you know, the supply and demand balance is we're in balance, but we're making progress. The input side made some progress. Prices these, although they're still expanding, not as fast a rate as they were in July and June. The suppliers delivered better. You can see that in the raw material inventory account. We uh, manufacturing inventory account, we got to a 55 first time in quite some time. So, uh, but I think we've got a new normal here that we're going to be dealing with for at least a year, and that's the impacts of, uh, of variants coming out and, and the attitude that it has on people. Tim, manufacturing, what are they saying about their labor force? Are they getting the labor they need? Well, that's the big story for the month. We're still struggling attracting people. Uh, the hire-to-fire ratio is still 8 or 9 to 1. Uh, no one is – I think I had one respondent talking about layoffs. Uh, everybody else is talking about trying to hire. Of the people, eight, I think 82% of my comments were hire-related. And uh, of that, 35% of those said that they were having difficulty, which is up five points from July. So that's, that says a lot. But the, the biggest thing on the labor side, I think, in August, is that what started in July, turnover, is now accelerating. So 25% of, of, of those hiring claims is related to turnover, including uh, retirements. And that, that's a big number. So you, know, you, you hire two, somebody retires, you have to hire three. It's, and, and in most cases, it's people chasing wages. And, and that's a direct result of people raising wages to try to uh, you know, fill up their staffing levels. All right. Very interesting stuff. Great to get uh, your take on this, Tim. Thanks so much for joining us as usual. Tim Fiore there is the chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey out of the Institute for Supply Management in Miami. Of course, we got that number. You can see it if you type Ecospace US Go um, or you can type WECO Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. Click on the American flag and you will see ISM Manufacturing came in at 59.9. Function of the nine. Day. From 58, uh, the survey was 58.5. So beating the survey and more than the prior reading of 59.5. We have had a ton of stories, well, just daily deluge of stories about the changing regulatory environment in China. And a lot of investors have just said it's uninvestable at this point, um, but some are seeing opportunities, and Ashraf Huck is among, that, among them. He's a senior portfolio manager at Sands Capital, and he joins us to talk about um, the companies that could benefit from the regulatory uh, revisions that we're seeing. Ashraf, thanks very much for joining us. What, what are you seeing as kind of the overall um, theme here in terms of what China's doing? 
Hey, Matt and Paul, thank you for having me on. Um, you know, it's been a rocky 2021, and the regulation has been fast and furious, uh, and, you know, we've taken some hits. But we think the government is focused on strategic priorities, improving its demographics, reducing income equality, moving to higher value manufacturing industries. And we don't think it's a case where they're trying to destroy capitalism or punish the wealthy. And so the attractive areas that they're pushing, uh, you know, they're encouraging more athletic participation, better access to affordable drugs and health care, and cleaning the environment. But when I take a look at big companies like Alibaba, like Tencent, which have been such winners, uh, not just for shareholders, but also arguably for China itself uh, on a global scale, seem to reflect very well on China. It surprised a lot of people that the government went after with such a heavy hand. Those, again, those companies that were really representing, I thought, China well on a global scale. How do you make make out or make peace with kind of how they're viewing some of their traditional stalwart companies? Yeah, I think that those tech companies have gotten so big, and a lot of the issues that the Chinese regulators are dealing with are the same issues that American and European regulators have with the big tech companies here. The difference is that China can regulate them much more efficiently and effectively. Um, so I don't think they're trying to destroy the Tencent and the Babas, uh, but they want to ensure fair competition. They want to ensure that uh, that the you know the the term that everyone's talking about is common prosperity. They want to ensure that there's more equal participation in the growth uh, that's being generated by those platforms. Are you concerned about the fact that you know things can change on a dime here? I mean, it's not like um, we get a plan that's laid out and we know in advance uh, they could just change their mind at any point. Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit more dynamic. It's complicated, but I also think China is just too compelling to ignore. Um, and as I mentioned, there are other, you know, right now the tech platforms and education, for example, are in the spotlight. But there's a lot of growth in consumer businesses there that the, the government will regulate to make sure that it's, it's fair competition, but they're not trying to control those businesses maybe as much. Uh, so, for example, uh, we own a business called Anta, which is one of our largest weights. It's a athletic footwear company, uh, and that's going to grow as the as the government's pushing more uh, kids into you know stop playing video games and play more soccer. Um, so, uh, and, and China's about to host the Winter Olympics. They're encouraging people to go skiing and things like that. So, Anta, uh, which you see Clay Thompson wearing, uh, will be a big beneficiary of that. And um, you know, it's something that uh, we've held for a long time, which can grow 25 to 30 percent over the next five years per year. So, Ashra, in, in, in terms of new capital going into China, my guess would be it's going to go in and demand a much higher risk premium. I'll pay a much lower multiple for my equity stake. I'll demand a higher yield on my credit. Talk to us about what you're seeing in the capital markets there, the financial markets, the funding markets for China. Yeah, that's certainly the case. And you're seeing that even reflected in the public company multiples. I mean, you look at a business like Alibaba versus Amazon, um, you know, very similar uh, growth rates. In fact, Baba is growing probably faster in its core business, and it trades at a much lower multiple, higher risk premium than Amazon. So it's certainly something we're seeing uh, in uh, both uh, private and public uh, funding markets. Interesting. Uh, when you see um, 
everyone sort of r- rushing out of China, heading for the exit. Does that provide any kind of um, a- any kind of opportunity? I mean, I notice there's some companies. I think of Evergrande, for example, uh, that are having fire sales. Yeah, we're not really interested in um, businesses like that. You know, we run global growth portfolios or distressed uh, or distressed EM. assets, Ashraf. No. Yeah, um, we're really looking for great growth franchises. Some of those are on sale, but uh, I think less than the fire sale, we're more interested in how uh, innovation and technology are creating new opportunities, and that's certainly happening in China as well as many other parts. I mean, China is a small part portion of our of our global international EM portfolios. Um, so. It is. I think less, uh, you know, the fire sale, more the opportunity that's being created by innovation. That's what we're focused on right now. All right, Ashraf, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Uh, getting some uh, thoughts there on China. And again, the real question is to what extent uh, is China investable? Is it still investable? But it's such a big part of the MSCI index that you kind of have to be there, as Ashraf said. Ashraf Haq, uh, Senior Portfolio Manager for Sands Capital. Thanks so much for I love the, joining I us. I love the, the athletic shoe point, you know, because... Yes. If kids are going to stop playing video games, and yep, I think that's a very big if, um, they are going to have to do something else. And it's probably going to involve running around um, wearing shoes, especially if they're playing basketball, which uh, they love to do, or they're getting pushed yep. out on the ski slopes and need new boots. Yeah, it should be interesting. But I'll be, like you said, Matt, I'll be, I don't know how they're going to regulate uh, the uh, – <laughs> Those know, kids are going to hack play, their way around video that. Games. Parents yeah. can't do it. Good luck to the Chinese government. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. But we have a good old-fashioned price war uh, in the M&A space, this time for Kansas City Southern Railway. we got the two Canadian railways, Canadian Pacific Railway and Canadian National, both vying for this asset would give them a great Canada through the U.S. into Mexico uh, line there. Lots of opportunity. Let's dig deep into this deal. We can do it with nobody better than Tony Hatch. He's been covering these rails and truckers for decades on Wall Street, one of the top analysts there. He is knee-deep in this deal. Tony, again, it makes a lot of sense to buy for one of these Canadian companies to buy Kansas City Southern. What's the problem here for these two players? It seems like Canadian National had a kind of a setback. So Canadian National, hey, Paul, Canadian National got a, a like a combination in the ring yesterday, a, a straight left by uh, the SDB rejecting their voting trust, and then a roundhouse by uh, TCI trying to change the management team out. So it was not a good day to be uh, in Montreal yesterday. The deal is that CN was proposing this under new rules, the so-called new rules for the SDB, which came about uh, in 2001 and require enhanced competition, not not just preventing reduced. CP skated by into the old rules, and CN also had horrible timing. This SDB is activist and wants to get out, get in the ring and punch at railroads, and CN has provided them with that opportunity. Is it damaging to have this kind of deal up in the air? I mean, um, what does management do when uh, there's so much uncertainty? It's a very good question. You know, I think you would say that there's some lost time, really, to get all three carriers involved, because certainly the top strategy lines were focused on on this and in Washington, D.C., rather than out in the field. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, ultimately damaging. Uh, I think they all have good prospects. You know, we may see change at CN, which would in some ways be unfortunate. Uh, but I think they can get past that level of damage. Uh, these deals would, for whoever would win, would be transformative and may have been worth the time risk, if not the dollar risk. 
So Canadian Pacific now, I guess, from a regulatory perspective, seems to be in the driver's seat here, but their offers actually lower than what Canadian National did. So are they going to have to raise their offer, or can their $27 billion offer still win the day? I think at this point it probably wins the day. So the key thing, and you may remember, Paul, is that the, uh, the voting trust issue if if CP is approved, if you if you were a shareholder of Kenzie Southern and your board and your shareholders voted to approve the CP deal, you could get paid almost instantly. If you were to continue with the CN deal, which I don't think will happen, but if you were to, you would have to take the entire regulatory review process, time, and risk. So the question is: is you know it's three hundred today, or maybe three twenty five in a year or more. So that's why they feel they don't need to raise. They can win with a lower face price, face price offer. Are there uh, – this deal would have gone to Canadian National Railway, and um, maybe it goes to Canadian Pacific now. Losing Kansas City Southern, it just strikes me as an American that we seem to be ceding power to the north. <laughs> Um, the railroaders, uh, you may recall, have always viewed this as a North American venture. After all, the uh, CEO of the Canadian Pacific uh, is an American. Uh, most of the transformation of CN under Hunter Harrison, an American, were Americans. So, um, you know, from a rail shipper and a rail investor, you could buy Canadian Pacific and sell Union Pacific or vice versa. That We don't view it that way. In fact, it would be more likely if somebody were to go buy an American railroad trying to buy one of the two Canadian headquartered railroads, that would raise nationalistic fears than a fear about somebody buying the smallest American railroad, which really is a play in Mexico, the third country we haven't talked about. Yeah, so let's talk about this deal strategically. Let's say Canadian Pacific gets uh, Kansas City Southern. Talk to us about the benefits of putting those two railroads together. Well, you know, and I want to say this, too. If CN had been able to do this without competition or under the old rules, they would have gotten this. The old rules, you know, this does not re reduce competition. The question is, does it enhance it? For CP, under the rules of nearly presenting that it doesn't hurt anything that currently exists, would link, you know, every railroad now wants to get access to more water. So it would get them to the U.S. Gulf and get them all the way to Mexico. It would link the auto industry from parts coming in, manufacturing in Mexico, Detroit, as well as in um, Ontario, would all be linked. In addition, corn grown in the Dakotas is the largest U.S. import into Mexico. Uh, and so they have you know, fertile growing fields there, and they have single-line service. So, you know, the, the, it would create a real power north-south. And most of the rail industry, as you recall, is focused east-west, you know, containers from L.A. inbound to Chicago and that type of thing. Does it, though, um, reduce the amount of competition in the industry? I mean, it must. It's CP. If CP were to win it, the answer is no, because they only touch at one point Kansas City. Mm. So, you know, it does create more competitive options. It doesn't really reduce rail competition. One of the, you bring up a point, the STB views this as railroad competition. There's fewer railroads now, et cetera. They ignore the fact that this north-south railroad parallels the Mississippi River, which is a huge freight, you know, highway, as well as the actual highway system, the subsidized, you know, interstate highway system. So from a shipper point of view, really neither reduces competition in a big, overall in a big, big way, but CP certainly does not. Hey, Tony, we, we hear would, a lot. You would argue it adds to it. Yeah. It hey, Tony, 
We, we, we hear a lot from across the industries really over the last couple of quarters, and we listen to earnings calls about the supply chain issues in this country. Give us a sense from your perspective from the railroad and the truckers. Kind of how bad is it? Uh, when is it going to get better, do you think? So it is bad, but it's not fatal. Um, you and I have lived through worse. Um, this is you know, a total supply chain issue in which continuing events, think of this as not a rock in a pond, but, you know, the biggest boulder you've seen. So the waves come and then they come again. If you shut a port down in China because of a new COVID, you know, outbreak, that affects ships coming into L.A. Long Beach. There there are 43 stacked outside of L.A. Long Beach. It looks like a D-Day photo. You have shortages of warehouse people, shortages of port people. You have railroad issues because the boxes are staying in their terminals, which are meant to be through stations, and there are not enough truck drivers or warehouse people to handle those boxes. So it is a system-wide problem. Rails are not covering themselves in glory. Uh, this year, they did pretty well last year in the first stages of the recovery, uh, but they're 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 part of the issue now. They get a lot of press. Remember Churchill's quote: "Never yep. let a good crisis go unused." <laughs> so shipper trade associations are piling on on railroads because they can. That's how the game is played. Yep. Uh, when will it get done? Probably not until early next year. But it is All not right. something that railroads themselves can solve. And yeah, in fact, absolutely. they may be done. If you talk to most international shippers, it's the water. Yeah, this is the biggest problem, not the land. All right, Tony, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, expert opinion, Tony Hatch, railroad, trucking, transportation analyst for ABH Consulting. He's been covering this sector for decades. He's got the goods there. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.